Welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. Ordinarily, after following our third interview of a traditional Sunday morning pastor, namely Pastor Mike Ford, we would sit together as co-hosts and have a roundtable discussion about all the things that he shared with us. This is not going to happen in today's episode. Instead, as it's the end of the year and we would like to round out our season one of the Gorilla Pastors podcast, we're going to shift gears and have a retrospective episode looking back at a Gorilla Pastor who is collaborating with traditional Sunday morning churches. Earlier on in the season, we had Pastor Amanda Montgomery on to share a little bit about what she was doing in ministry. We will share a link in our show notes, but to briefly explain what it is she's doing, we can simply rename one of our tenants, which is celebrating a diverse praxis. In essence, she left Sunday morning ministry in pursuit of a ministry that is far more subversive, that she can partner alongside of traditional Sunday morning churches with. So join us as we discover the work she is doing on the Gorilla Pastor Podcast. What I noticed was that Christians could not have conversation with each other if they disagreed with one another. It's all about entering in to the textured presence of lived lives. And so the the sanitation of it just broke for me. Like, church can't be sanitized. I always feel like I'm not what people think of when they think of a pastor. I went to school for youth ministry and have now figured out how to do like construction work. It's good, good stuff. The church is struggling and declining in ways that we've never experienced in the United States and Canada right now. We have to like allow ourselves to embrace new ways of being in a place. Insurgent revolutions, i.e. guerrilla warfare, is 20% bullets and 80% blessing the people. How do we be eternally faithful? Like literally, like how do we be faithful in a way today that in 20 years, people aren't going, he was evil. Why are we so afraid? We believe that God is at work in all places, in all people, at all times. That is amazing and that should give us hope. We are the Gorilla Pastors. Join us as we explore a world of ministry founded on Subversive Presence. Today, we revisit a conversation with pastor-slash-doctor Amanda Montgomery. In a previous episode, we discussed Amanda's decision to step away from traditional Sunday morning ministry to pursue the work of her D-men, a thesis she wrote focused on human trafficking awareness and the reality that this is not something new, that it's something we can find in our very Bible. But I'll let her explain it in her own words. The the topic of of the the D-Min dissertation is what Christians should know before joining the fight against commercial sexual exploitation or sex trafficking. and so I'm really looking at what sex trafficking looks like in the local community or in at least in the United States. Um, and it's going to look a lot different than maybe what people have seen in movies or 
even on news headlines and different things that might scare them, but they might start to think that that's all foreign trafficking rings. Um, yes, that does exist, but not usually in our local community. The problem is when we think that that is what it looks like, um, then people can't even picture, <laughs> they can't even see it in their own hometown and it's happening and then victims don't have anybody to turn to. So the purpose of the dissertation in one or two sentences aha, is, uh, is trying to help us see what it actually looks like in the local community so that we can be an approachable space for victims and survivors. But spoiler alert, we're not having a conversation with Pastor Amanda because she earned a demon. No, instead, we want to understand what she is doing now, something that we would call subversive ministry, something that, in our minds, earns her the title of guerrilla pastor. It's what she does with this dissertation that we're so intrigued by. Instead of writing a 200-page document that would probably just make the rounds in academia, she chose another route, a route which would allow her to take her work and publish it, to become a curriculum that can be used by churches. Yes, so, so the six-week curriculum is that orchestration of, in a way, a little bit of that therapy background. Did I mention she also used to be a therapist? And, um, and theology and anti-trafficking work. So all of that's in the dissertation, and I try to blend all of that into the six-week study. Um, I think we can all agree that uh, trafficking in the local community is a very disturbing thought. What people are going through is a very disturbing thing. And so usually community members can't even fathom that what is happening is really happening in their local community. And so throughout that six-week time, I do create some therapeutic moments because I want people to go through the Kubler-Ross grief cycle, right? So the idea that, you know, there's shock, there's, there's doubt, you know, there's anger, there's how can this possibly be happening here? And I would much prefer people go through that in a small group, in a Bible study, learning about anti-trafficking work, um, instead of in front of a survivor who deeply needs some help, where we're all of a sudden projecting our fears, our doubts, our anger onto somebody who already has complex trauma. And so that's a huge uh, goal in this, is that uh, people can learn what they need to do in their community, um, what the red flags look like, what the resources look like, and also dealing with their own biases and their own grief and shock and everything before they get involved with survivors. And after Amanda perfectly articulates the why behind this work, we would like to take it a step further and share specifics about what you can find in her curriculum. We'll start with a lesson on Bilha and Zilpa. If those biblical characters are not immediately recognizable, don't worry, you're not alone. In this lesson, Amanda has an organizing principle. She writes, Sex trafficking perpetrators and victims are hidden in plain sight, in the Bible and in the local community. With that, here's Amanda on this little-known biblical story and why it's part of her curriculum. Bilha and Zilpah are just a great example of some of the things I talk about in the Bible study. Um, and you're right, those are names that people usually don't recognize immediately. Um, but when you think about Jacob, that's a, that's a name that people are usually pretty familiar with. 
um, having two wives, um, and that is uh, Rachel and Leah, the sisters. Um, but what we tend to forget is that um, their household slaves, their household servants that their father gave them the day they were married, um, are also named in the Bible, and their names are Bilhah and Zilpah. So that's where they are located. What we see is warring sisters, and a lot of times that's something that people are familiar with in that story, that the sisters want to have children and they're warring. Um, so they have some of the kids of their own, and then they um, force their slaves to be impregnated by their husband, Jacob. And four more children are born that way. Um, well, the Bible gives us those names, and we talk about the importance of, of their story and how it relates to um, modern-day situations that people are living through, why it's so important for us to learn and, and teach it now. What's so unique about Amanda's curriculum is that it ties the theological with the sociological happenings of our day. By pointing out that these terrible things actually happened in the Bible, we have a touchstone to then process how this could happen in our very communities. So I asked her to explain in today's terms what was happening in this story. Oh, that's, uh, that's trafficking. Yeah, that would be human trafficking. That would be probably these days. Um, it would be uh, labor trafficking to have a household servant um, or a slave who doesn't have any rights. Um, but then the, the forced impregnation would start to get it toward the sex trafficking side of things. Despite what some might feel as a stretch, Amanda grounds this in the biblical narrative. In her curriculum, she asks the question, who does Rachel believe should receive credit for these children in this Genesis 30 story? Yeah, these are very significant children. So Rachel and Leah, in this story in particular, are not introducing Jacob to a third and fourth wife. That was not their intention. Their intention was to um, have full control over every child born to them, uh, born to their slave, slave. And so we see that in the way that they name their children, um, Bilhah and Zilpah's children. Um, and so they'll name them things like, I am winning, or God is giving me, you know, glory over my sister or something like that. I mean, they're very yeah. intense names. These, th these are the names that the men are, have to have for the rest of their life. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of interesting in and of itself. But even in the naming, which is very powerful in and of itself, you see control and you see that Rachel and Leah fully intended to have um, ownership over the children that are born. Um, that they forced to have born. The interesting thing, of course, is that uh, these are the children who later become the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so here we have Bilhah and Zilpah, who probably experienced this kind of abuse for the rest of their lives. We don't see that they ever had the opportunity to leave Jacob's household. And, and sadly, that's, that's very common now for uh, labor trafficking to to go for the entirety of somebody's life. Um, but what we see is God's compassion. So they are named. You know, 1,400 years later, they're put in the Bible again. I mean, everybody here, Bilhah, Zilpah, Rachel, Leah, Jacob, have all passed away centuries prior. And God remembers. And he names these, uh, these 12 tribes again. And instead of putting them in birth order, which is very, very common in the Jewish culture, he puts them in the order of, um, he, he categorizes them under birth mother, which was never Rachel and Leah's um, plan, uh, but it was God's plan. And so all of a sudden we see two 
household servants not only named, but shown the dignity and the honor um, of being matriarchs of four of the 12 tribes of Israel. So we see that God shows a lot of compassion and dignity to survivors. After sitting through one of these lessons myself, I can attest to the fact that I will no longer look at that story in Genesis 30 quite the same. But I was curious to know what were the reactions of others she was teaching these lessons to, as this was no ordinary Bible study. I've, I've been very thankful for how open and honest and vulnerable people have been in, um, in this process. Um, there, there really has been very little pushback. Um, and, and if so, it's been questioning what Scripture says, and we just open it up. And I, that's exactly what I want, is for people to wrestle with Scripture and look at it and read it. And usually what it is is grief, to say, yes, this has been here. Why haven't we heard about it? until now and what does this mean for us now in our in our current context this gets to the heart of why what amanda is doing is so subversive as humans we tend to not want to talk about those things that make us uncomfortable as preachers we tend to steer clear from those stories that make us unsure of what to say and as the church we sometimes are in denial about something terrible that is happening in our very neighborhoods something like human trafficking. And I wanted to know why. And since Amanda is writing this curriculum, and since she is also a therapist, I asked her. Well, one of the things that I talk about at the beginning of the book is um, the importance of recognizing that uh, trafficking can be boiled down to um, three main variables, right? So you've got survivors or victims, You've got perpetrators, which can be um, it, it's buyers and traffickers. Um, sometimes a trafficker does not exist, but there will always be buyers in this section. And then there's the community. So the context where this happens, the people that are all around that may or may not know that this crime is occurring. And those three factors are always there. Um, so when we're talking about um, why we deny abuse, I think some of it has to do with um, not fully owning up, <laughs> not fully owning up to um, the, the role that we play in the community that this is actually happening. Um, and so also when something is very, very disturbing and there's an easier answer for it, um, we sometimes psychologically take the easier road. I don't know if I want to go there. It's kind of an uncomfortable thing, but. It's a protection, like it's a, it's, it's a survival thing sometimes too, right? Where your brain even just blacks out an event for its own self-preservation almost? Yeah. Well, let's take, and, and this is actually why I use Bible characters instead of modern day stories. Okay. First of all, A, a lot of survivors are saying, stop using our stories. If it's our book, we can write it. We can write our memoir. But for allies to write a story that they may not have had full permission to, to write, publish, and possibly profit off of, mm -hmm. um, some survivors are saying, you trafficked me again. Oh. And so um, one thing that you'll see in this is every story that I'm using is from the Bible. I want people to be able to um, wrestle with this, and I want them to do it with a story that is, um, that is something that they may have already been exposed to, something that they may already be familiar with. So in that idea of um, why would we deny abuse, 
well, we all like Jacob. Jacob is one of the one of the the founding fathers, right, of the faith. Um, and the children that are born are a blessing, right? And so these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the identity of not just Judaism, but of of Christianity as well. This is a big deal. And so can God be both compassionate and loving and just and still allow these children who have been born in in a a horrific situation um, to to be a blessing and, and actually be the 12 tribes of Israel that he, you know, establishes entire, you know, kingdom or you know nation nation out of well he did but that doesn't mean that we have to deny the hard parts and and look at it we can do both and that is uncomfortable for people usually they want to take one or the other one of the hardest things in in uh working with this is when people are starting to hear that somebody that they that they have know and love and trust in the bible has also been a perpetrator it's hard for them not to go i either want to deny what i just learned or I want to start to like discredit this person. And I say, you can't. Yeah. You have to hold both. You have to be able to say, yes, Jacob allowed this in his household. And Jacob is another one of the people who, you know, there's faith credited as righteousness. And he is somebody that God used and blessed. And yes, we can continue to learn and teach and be inspired by Jacob. Hmm. And this happened in, on his watch. Since we've talked about preaching often on this podcast, I also asked her why this wasn't something you would commonly hear in a Sunday morning sermon. We have created little to no space for redemption for perpetrators. So that's part of the problem. Just in general, just people that do bad things, there's not, there's not a redemptive yeah. thread that we can celebrate. We teach it, we preach it. But um, when it comes to things like sexual assault, exploitation, trafficking... We would much prefer to believe the myth (laughs) that there's some boogeyman out there doing these things and they're monstrous. Okay, what they are doing is monstrous, okay. But that they are monsters outside of redemption. Um, And that's a huge part of the problem. And I think the community creates shadows um, within our community to say, we don't know who they are, we don't want to know who they are. And then when it comes out to, to be somebody that we actually know, right, when you see a sting operation and, and you, you start to see faces and names and ages and all of a sudden you're going, wow, these are either people that I know or people I easily could know in my community. This isn't who I thought was, was trafficking people. Um, that, that breaks our stereotypes, it breaks our bias, and it makes uh, survivor stories a lot easier to share when we realize it's not the boogeyman out there. So I think all of those reasons are, are um, play into why the community denies abuse when it happens or trafficking when it happens, um, justifies perpetrator actions because we're thinking, well, they're not a monster. Um, so therefore they must not be a perpetrator at all because we have a misunderstanding of who perpetrators are. As I processed all of this, I was drawn back to the lesson I sat through with Pastor Amanda on Bilha and Zilpa. While it was clear to me at this point why this was not a sermon illustration I had ever heard before or a Bible study I never sat through, I wondered what Amanda hoped I took away from it. I want people to start introducing themselves, even in, in just in the Bible first, but starting to, to learn how to 
have empathy and compassion for survivors, to start breaking the, their concept of who a survivor is, what victimization looks like, that it can happen um, in the context of a family home. This isn't a situation where um, people are being you know, exploited outside of the family, but this is a hush-hush situation that is happening inside a family, inside a household, and there's nobody to help. So re recognizing that that happens. Um, I'm hoping that people will start to realize that um, in the, the lesson right before, we talk about how um, there's a different victim who God rescues twice. Um, Zilpah and Bilha are not rescued in this situation, not in their lifetime. And I think it's important for us as Christians to not create um, fairy tales where essentially we're saying, um, if God cares, then he would rescue. That's not everybody's story. And when we put God in a box like that, um, it, leaves, it leaves victims and survivors who have gone through years of suffering with, with no ability to approach a God who has cared, deeply cared for them throughout that whole time. And so I think it is important to talk about the hard, the hard subjects and that Bill and Zilpah probably never did get out of that, that, um, that lifestyle. Um, and then really, in the, again, in that lesson, you, you touched on it, but helping community members, allies, to realize that embedded in us, in our culture, there is already um, an urge to want to deny abuse, to justify perpetrator actions, and to blame victims. If we can understand that we're already set to not believe what a victim is telling us, um, then we can start to uh, see that from a more um, critical, critical thinking, you know, place, and uh, and start to question. So that then, if somebody is, you know, saying this may have happened to me, you can start to go, oh, am I having that urge to go? I don't think it could have happened. I'm sure that person didn't mean that. Or am I, am I ready to actually listen, active listening skills, that kind of thing? Amanda's goal of creating a more empathetic church that was better at active listening, just being there for someone in suffering, is something I admired. Still, as she has done the research, I wondered what she thought about why we struggled, in general, with things like suffering. Where to begin? First of all, I would say I don't think that the church is the only one who has difficulty with suffering. Um, I, I think that the community, <laughs> the whole community, um, has some biases that keep us from being able to see some of the suffering that's happening. Um, the church has some of those similar biases and then added some extras um, if, if we're not careful. I think the community does too, but um, our, our certain ways of seeing um, possibly gender roles, um, possibly uh, modesty and what, what it means. And so, you know, if somebody doesn't dress modest, then maybe they cause these different things to happen to them. Just all of the different biases that we may have added on. <laughs> um, I talk about uh, bad girl kind of issues that we have where we're some of the women in the Bible are called the bad girls of the Bible, and that just really bothers me because uh, that's not how I see them at all. Um, how, do, how do you see them? Well, who do you want to bring up? So, um, well, I have, you've heard me uh, talk about Rahab. That, let's, let's talk about Rahab because I don't want to talk about all of them. Probably take too long, but um, why do we think of Rahab as a bad girl of the Bible? Because she was a prostitute. Because she was a prostitute. When was she a prostitute? 
says she was. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's very clear on it. It is very clear. It's very It's okay, very clear. I did not It's all right. It, I'm putting you on the spot now. In Jericho. In Jericho. When she was a foreigner. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Joshua's spies are going in to Jericho to find out if it's God's timing to, to take down this city. And they meet Rahab. And Rahab, in faith, says, I already know that your God has... Um, caused everyone here to be afraid and that you know he's going to win (laughs) essentially is what she says and then she hides them and um, does a lot of faithful moments where she's making the choice to put her own life on the line to hide two spies and then let them escape and give Joshua the information that it's time to go ahead and take down um, Jericho in the process she makes a um, an agreement with them I'll let you escape but I want you to come and save my family Right, so she brings her whole family into her household, and they have to stay in one space while their entire city is being destroyed. She's living on the wall. We know that. It's in Scripture. And so the wall, as we know, is coming down, and she has to stay there. So a very, very faithful woman. Um, and then she and her family are the only ones that are allowed in all of Jericho to become part of the tribe of Israel. Um, and so it appears that she's no longer a prostitute. She made her decision when she hid those spies. Um, so she is a former prostitute. She's one of the most faithful people. I mean, it's just incredible, her story. And then, uh, and then one of the things I have no idea why we don't teach it in, in Bible, you know, Sunday school or on, in sermons, but she is uh, Boaz's mother. And so later on when we're, you know, talking about Boaz and Ruth and how kind he is, really all he's doing, I love Boaz, by the way, but really all he's doing is following the book of the law, right, on how you're supposed to be um, hospitable to foreigners and take care of widows and be a kinsman redeemer. This is all scripture. Um, this is th- These are the rules of what it means to be a hospitable person in the tribe of Israel. Um, but I think that he also has some lived experience because his own mother was a foreigner um, when when she came into Israel. And so we see him being that kinsman redeemer. Um, so I think that she's a very faithful person. Turns out I'm not the only one. Book of Hebrews, you know, in the Faith Hall of Fame puts her in there um, in chapter 11 saying that she is faithful. Um, so yes, was she a prostitute at some point? Yes. And then she has an encounter with God and she changes. Why is that so important? Because if Rahab, who's been exonerated, <laughs> vindicated by the Bible and calls her a faithful person, cannot shake the label of prostitute after what, 3,000 years, then what message are we sending to people who have been trafficked in our location, right? And have been exploited in sex work and have been labeled prostitutes. How long do they have to wait before they're no longer you know, so-and-so the prostitute? So I think she's a very important person. Of course, she's also in the lineage of, of Jesus. One of the goals would be um, that we start to recognize that one in four women and one in six men in our congregations and in our communities have been sexually assaulted. Um, some of them have been exploited. Some of them have been trafficked. And so when we speak about scripture, and in that example, 
call Rahab a prostitute rather than, you know, bringing up that she's this faithful person and, and bringing up how Hebrews brings her up. Yes, she's still, they mentioned that she was a prostitute, but, um, but it's in the form of explaining how faithful she was and hospitable she was. Um, but when we choose to um, start to change our language and understand that the one in four women and the one in six men are listening, not to mention the perpetrators who are also in possibly congregations, definitely in the community. They are listening and they are getting their, the message that we are sending, whether we know that we're sending it or not, on what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, who's welcome here, who is not welcome here. If, if, you know, if somebody has been exploited in our community, can they talk to us or that can they not? Will they always be a prostitute in our minds? Or will we see them as a redeemed person, faithful, and, you know, somebody that God has used in mighty ways? So that's um, one of the goals that I would have in, in this Bible study is just a new perspective of, of um, understanding victims, understanding perpetrators, and understanding our role as the community. If we allow biases, stereotypes, and kind of fairy tales to, um, to paint the picture of what trafficking looks like, then, then we're making victims and survivors do the hard work of breaking the ice if they ever wanted to share with us. First of all, essentially, we might not be the safe people to share with. But if they did take that chance to share with us that this is something that they happened, it's an uphill battle because we'll go, well, that doesn't really happen in our town. So I don't know what happened to you, but I don't hear foreign trafficking ring. So, I mean, that's how extreme it can be. Um, if we can break the ice instead, then we can create a more approachable space in our churches, in our communities, but also for anybody who wants to go and volunteer at a nonprofit organization that's doing this amazing anti-trafficking work. A lot of them are um, led by survivors. So people who have experienced complex trauma, a lot of the times they're saying, I don't really want to work with some of the volunteers because the volunteers, frankly, are harming me and harming other survivors because they're coming in thinking, I'm here to save you. <laughs> I'm here to you know, give you what I think you need. And when that's not what you need, I'm out. And so there's more abandonment, there's more judgment, different things like that. So huge part of the goal would be, yes, creating a more approachable church atmosphere, a community atmosphere. The other one is preparing volunteers to go in and help and um, have already done their, their work to understand, you know, the legal definitions of trafficking. What, is, what does it actually mean, right? The basics. Um, and, and start to uh, wrestle with their own biases and start to have more accurate information. This Bible study and ministry that Pastor Amanda is spearheading is radical. And while we could give it fancy names like subversive or guerrilla, really what is so wonderful about it is that it addresses a real-world problem by going to the Bible and helping us unpack our own biases so that we can better be the church that God has called us to be. Now, as you know, we have already highlighted Amanda on this podcast, and we have decided to dive deeper into what she's doing for a very specific reason. Amanda is embodying what we see the future of ministry looking like. This subversive ministry that she is leading, which has earned her the 
title we place on her of Gorilla Pastor is something that may seem a little bit out of the box to some churches. However, she is not doing this outside of any accountability or oversight from the district and is in fact partnering with many local churches here in the Pacific Northwest. In our next episode, we're going to sit down with Amanda and one of these local church lead pastors to talk about the nuts and bolts of what it is like to bring in this subversive biblical curriculum to a Sunday morning church where this sort of conversation may be less than likely to take place. So join us as we wrap up our very first season of the Gorilla Pastor podcast with a story about a guerrilla pastor and a traditional Sunday morning church joining forces. But don't worry, you'll hear from me and my co-hosts one more time before the season is through. Until then, would you be so kind as to rate, review, and subscribe so others might hear this podcast as well. As always, I've been your host Josiah, and this has been the Guerrilla Pastors Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.